First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. My God, rescue me from my enemies, for they are in hot pursuit. I did nothing to deserve this, God. They're constantly watching, hoping to take my life. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm thanking you, God, out loud in the streets. You've been a safe place for me, a good place to hide. I can always count on you. Let's pray together. Father, I'm mindful today that my words alone have no power to change anything. But Father, your words can change everything. And so, Lord, as we have just sung together, we ask that you would speak, O Lord. You would speak to each of our hearts. Father, I pray especially for anyone who is here today that doesn't yet know you in a saving way. Father, you would speak to their hearts, that you would draw them to faith in yourself, that they would receive grace from you today the grace that you've shown to me and so many others in this room, that that grace would be theirs today by faith. Father, we thank you for those that are coming to know you in this church and through the ministry of this church. But Father, we pray for more. Because we know that there are thousands and thousands of men and women and girls and boys living all around us that do not know you right now. And so we pray that you would pour your spirit out even today. Lord, you would be mighty to save in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Things Get Weird, But God Still Wins. You know, I think all of us have uh, times in our life where things get weird. Uh, Things got weird for me one time. Uh, when I was trying to do something special with my wife, Megan. We had gone up, this was several years ago, to a, a Florida State game in Tallahassee. And so I had gone online and, and found this little bed and breakfast that was pretty close to Tallahassee. It was in this little, little town called Monticello. And it looked, uh, looked, looked quaint. It looked like a charming little place. It was, it was over a hundred-year-old home. It was kind of a Victorian-style bed and breakfast. So I thought it would be really nice. And, and so after the game, we, we, we drove to Monticello. We pulled up to this bed and breakfast. And as, as I went inside the door, I immediately noticed right there by the door, there was this table that was full of, of brochures. And, and every brochure on that table had to do with ghost hunting. Uh, even all the, the material that was about Monticello said that it was called the, the most haunted little town in the South. Even the, the bed and breakfast we were staying in offered ghost hunting tours. Uh, there were ghost carriage rides and different things you could take all over town. And we thought, well, hmm, you know, this is interesting. But, but we just kind of laughed it off and we went up to, uh, to bed. And, and our room, you know, was a little 
creepy, and, and, and the floors, the old wooden floors were, were kind of creaky, but, but we survived the night, and so, you know, the next morning we went down to breakfast, and you know how at, at, at bed and breakfast is, you eat with all the other people who are staying there, so we're sitting at this, this long uh, rectangular table, it's filled with people, and, and we just start listening as everybody is talking, and I'm telling you that literally every person that was at the table was there to hunt for ghosts. I mean, there was even a couple that was there that was writing a book about ghost hunting. And, and these people believed this to the core. Uh, I'm telling you, if Stay Puff the Marshmallow Man had showed up, we would not have needed to call for Ghostbusters because they were right there. We were in good hands. And, and, and I wish that I could tell you as your pastor that, that I just boldly proclaimed the gospel to all of them and they were all saved uh, that day at the breakfast table. But in reality, I was just trying not to laugh. And we, we, we got out of there as quickly as we could after breakfast. And uh, suffice it to say, I don't think I earned any husband points uh, for my choice of a bed and breakfast that particular weekend because things definitely got weird at the bed and breakfast. Well, in chapter 27 and chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, things get weird. They, they get weird in chapter 27 when David, the anointed king of Israel, goes to live for over a year with the Philistines, the sworn enemy of Israel, and makes them think that he is one of them. That was weird, but it is nothing compared to what happens in chapter 28 that we'll read in just a few minutes, because chapter 28 might be one of the weirdest, most unexpected chapters in all the Bible. Well, what are we to do when things get weird in our lives? And better yet, how can we be faithful to the Lord when things in our life get weird, when we don't understand what is happening, when we don't know what to do, to do next? I believe in these two chapters in Samuel, we learn a few ways that we can continue to be faithful to the Lord, even in those weird and difficult circumstances that we sometimes find ourselves in. And here's the first way that we can do that. We need to make sure that Faith is driving our decisions rather than fear. Now, I suppose it should not surprise us that David ends up fleeing to the Philistines because in the last chapter he hinted as much to King Saul that he felt like he was being chased clear out of Israel because Saul uh, wouldn't stop pursuing him. And so he runs to the Philistines in chapter 27. In particular, verse 2 says he runs to Achish, the king of Gath. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because we have already seen that name. Back in chapter 21, David ran to this same man, this same king in this same city of Gath. And on that occasion, the people said to Achish, they said, hey, this is David. He is the warrior that's killed thousands of Philistines. And so David knew that, and, and for fear of his life, in chapter 21, he actually pretended that he was crazy. And it's just an interesting story there where he starts spitting all over himself. He starts falling down on the ground and clawing at the bars of the gate to make the king think he was crazy. And it worked. And the king thought, well, this guy's he's just crazy. Well, I don't, I don't care what happens to him. I don't need to worry about him. And here, uh, David, for the second time, runs to this same man in this same town. And you would think that he would be upset because he had been duped before. But apparently, he wasn't so upset as he was impressed. He was impressed with David. He was impressed with David's 600-man army that he had with him. 
And he thought, well, Saul has driven him out of the land of Israel, and I could really use this guy uh, in my army. I could use this guy on my side. And so in verse 5, David asked the Philistine king to give him a little city out in the country. And he uses the ploy, basically, of being a, a country boy that isn't fit for life in the big city. But in reality, he just wants to be someplace away from uh, Achish's surveillance where uh, what he does will not be known to the king. And so the king relents to that request. He gives David this city called Ziklag. And verse 7 says David lived there altogether for 16 months. And verses 8 through 12 tells us how David spent those 16 months and what he was up to. I know it's a little bit hard to, to decipher as, as you read through this uh, story because there's a lot of names of people and, and places that uh, we're not uh, super familiar with. But, but basically, just to summarize, David was living during these 16 months like a double agent. He was going out every day with his men, and he was raiding people. And the people that he was raiding were actually the enemies of his people, the Israelites. But then he would come back every night, and he would tell Achish, he would say, actually, I've been raiding in this area of Israel and that area of Israel. And he was making Achish think uh, that it, the Israelites were, were probably uh, just disgusted with David by this time because he was attacking them every day. Uh, when in reality, David wasn't attacking his own people at all. He was attacking the enemies of his people. And really, he was earning favor every day uh, with Israel, which would help him later as he became king. The text tells us that when David attacked a certain place, that he would wipe out everybody there because, as they say, dead men tell no tales. And he didn't want anybody reporting on him to Achish and giving away the little double operation that he had been running. The first few verses of chapter 28 tell us, though, that what David was doing almost backfired on him in spectacular fashion. Because while David was living among the, the Philistines, the Philistines decide that they're going to go to war against the Israelites. And the king of Gath comes to David and he says, by the way, you know that you're going to fight with us, right? The, the fact that I've let you live in Ziklag, the fact that I've kind of left you alone, that comes with certain expectations. And you do realize that when we go to war, you're not fighting with them, you're fighting with us, right? And David thinking quickly on his feet, comes up with something to say. And in verse 2, he says this, Surely you know what your servant can do. Now, Achish took that as a yes, that David would fight with him. But actually, that was a pretty ambiguous answer. And just because Achish knew what David could do doesn't mean he knew what David would do and who he would do it for when the time came for the battle. And I think at this point in time, David is just trying to buy time to figure out how he's going to get himself out of this pickle that he has found himself in. Now, the story of this battle actually doesn't pick up again until chapter 29, and we'll see that next week. And we'll find out that the Lord actually bails David out and keeps him from ever having to fight against the nation of Israel because the Philistines end up not trusting him and don't let him go to war with them. You know, admittedly, the picture we have of our protagonist, of David, in chapter 27 is not a pretty picture. He is lying again. 
He is duping this Philistine king. He was going out on raids every day and killing everybody on those raids. And and even though the people that he was killing on these raids were Canaanites, that actually Joshua and the nation of Israel should have already driven out of the promised land if they had been faithful to do uh, everything that God told them to do. It doesn't really seem like David is doing any of this for the honor and glory of God. In fact, what the text says is David was doing it so that he would not be ratted out. And I don't believe that the Lord condones any of the things that David does in this chapter. And if you notice, in this chapter, David never once asks God what he should do. He never seeks counsel of the Lord at all. This is David just doing what David thinks is best. And I think it all goes back to verse 1 of chapter 27 and the decision that David makes to run to the Philistines in the first place. Look at that verse again with me. David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel so I shall escape out of his hand. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, David's plan worked. He went to the land of the Philistines so Saul wouldn't chase him, and Saul did stop chasing him. You could also argue that David was trying to be a realist, that he had his wives to take care of. Probably the other soldiers had wives and children as well, and so he's trying to take care of all of them and take them to a place that was safe. And so in one sense, we make and understand the decision that he makes, but on the other hand, It's very clear that the decision that David makes to go to the Philistines was not made from a place of faith. It was made from a place of fear. Because David said, I'm going to die. One of these days, Saul is going to kill me. And it's interesting that he said that because what God had told him was the opposite. God had told him and promised him that he was going to be king. And just the chapter right before that, David had believed that promise. David had said to his servant, I don't have to worry about Saul. God, one way or another, is going to take care of Saul. And he actually used this language. He said, God will sweep Saul away. Well, just one chapter later, Now David uses that same terminology and he says, actually, I believe one day Saul is going to sweep me away. And so he's no longer believing the promises of God. He's listening to his fears and he's acting based upon his fears. Now, are we ever guilty of that? Of course we are. We, we all are. There are times where even though we know what God has told us, even though we know his promises, we are afraid. And because of our fear, we act in ways that do not honor God. We're afraid that this is going to happen or that is going to happen or our, our worst fears are going to be realized. And so we make decisions not because we prayed about something and we know that this is the path that God wants us to walk in but because we're afraid if we don't act that something bad is going to happen to us. But the Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. We need to make sure that whatever we do is driven by faith and not by fear. And I think a big part of that is what we say to ourselves. Look back at verse 1, the first few words. It says, And David said in his heart, And so what we read there in verse 1 is actually what David is saying to himself. This is a personal conversation. He's speaking to his own soul, and he's saying to himself, I'm going to die. 
Saul is, is going to kill me one day, and so there's nothing better for me to do than to run over here to the Philistines. That's what he was saying to himself, and because it's what he was saying to himself, it's what he ended up believing, and it's what he ended up doing. Here, here's the principle. The path our heart chooses has a lot to do with what we say to our heart. The path that our heart chooses has a lot to do with what we speak, what we say to our heart. And so, friend, what have you been saying to your heart lately? Have you been speaking words of truth to your heart? Have you been reminding yourself of God's promises? Or have you been telling your heart things that are not true? Have you been telling your heart things that tend to tear down your faith instead of build it up? Have you been saying things to your heart that, that are leading you to make fear-based decisions instead of faith-based decisions? Again, the path your heart will choose has a lot to do with what you're telling it. I told you that chapter 27 was a weird chapter, and it was, but again, it does not hold a candle to the weirdness that awaits us in chapter 28. But even in this strange chapter in God's Word, the Lord wants to speak to us. And so let's read the rest of the story. Chapter 28, starting in verse 3, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. It says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they had camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a median, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went. And two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up the one that I named to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me any more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. 
Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice. I put my life in your hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread with it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. Now, if you had never read this story before and someone asked you if you thought the Bible had a story about a seance where a real live witch brought somebody back from the dead, I'm guessing that you would not think that that story was in the Bible. And yet, here it is. And it is here for a reason. And in this story, again, God wants to show us how we can be faithful even when things in our life get weird. Here's another way we can be faithful. We need to remember that disobedience and the demonic are two stops on the same highway. Verse 3 gives us a little background information that's very pertinent to this story. It reminds us that Samuel, the prophet of God, the one who anointed Saul and David as king, has already died. Verse 3 also tells us that previously Saul had driven out all of the mediums and spiritists, and your translation might say wizards. He had driven all of them out of the land of Israel, and he should have done that because Leviticus and Deuteronomy say that that is what God would have him do. But here, even though Saul knew what he was doing was wrong, even though he knew it was against God's law, he decides he's going to go and find one of those very same mediums that he had previously kicked out. And just like with David's decisions in the last chapter, fear is what is driving Saul's decisions as well. He is terrified because of the Philistines. They have lined up in battle against him. He knows that he is outmatched, and he feels he has no one to turn to. In verse 6, he says, He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Those are the three main ways that at that time they had to seek counsel of the Lord. The Lord wasn't speaking to him through his dreams. wasn't speaking to him through the Urim, which was something that the chief priests would use to determine the will of God. And he wasn't speaking to him through the prophets. And of course, Samuel the prophet had already died. And, and so Saul, in verse 7, has to make one of the worst decisions that I think has ever been made. He says, find me a witch. And then he goes with two others in the night, disguising himself to find this woman in a town called Endor. This is why, by the way, this woman is often called the witch at Endor. And again, he had to disguise himself as he went in the night to find this woman. And, and just as a general rule, unless you are giving a charitable gift or something that you do not want others to know it is you that is doing it, in general, whenever you are doing something and you don't want other people to see it, or you're doing something and you don't want other people to know it's you that is doing it, usually that's not something you should be doing. Certainly, this was not something that Saul should be doing, going to a witch and asking her to conduct 
a seance. This is how far Saul has fallen. And I was reminded this week about something that Samuel had said to Saul way back in chapter 15 when Saul did not obey God in the battle with the Amalekites and he brought back some of the spoil from that battle that he was not supposed to do. And this is what Samuel said to Saul that day. He said, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You know, I'm sure on that particular day, Saul probably thought, I mean, come on, Samuel. I I mean, aren't you exaggerating a little bit? I mean, sure, maybe I didn't obey everything God told me to do to the T, but 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 it's not like I was practicing witchcraft. I mean, it's not the same thing at all. And yet here is Saul just a little bit later, and what Samuel said to him that day turned out not to be an exaggeration at all. Saul's little bit of rebellion here and a little bit of stubbornness there and a little bit of disobedience over here had led him all the way to the point where he was literally practicing witchcraft. And Greer and Thomas bring out in their commentary on this passage that we should take strong warning from this. They, they write that even in our lives today, small compromises can grow into full-orbed dependence on the demonic. That we cherish little bits of compromise here and there in our life, but but what is really behind those compromises is an idol, a false god that we're worshiping in our hearts. And normally the idol that we're worshiping in our hearts is ourselves. But worshiping ourselves, self-worship, did not start with us. It started with Satan. And so we need to realize that when we're walking down a road of disobedience, it's it's not a morally neutral road. It's actually a demonic road. Because it's no different for Saul as it is for us. Disobedience and the demonic are two stops on the same highway. Now, of course, we all in this room are sinners. Every one of us, myself included, have disobeyed God. And so God is the only one who can take us from this demonic path of disobedience that leads to hell and transfer us to a path that leads to heaven. And he does it through faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. But you know, even today in our culture, there is a great interest in the occult whether it is horoscopes or or astrology or palm reading or fortune tellers or or, or Wicca. There there are many people in our society and maybe even some in this room right now who are dabbling in the occult. And, And what is the allure of that? Why do people do that? Well, I want to suggest a couple of reasons. First, I think people do that because people in general, all people want to be loved. They want to feel love, and, and some people feel that the only way to feel that love is to be connected with a departed loved one. But in reality, the love that we were created to experience, the only love that can really satisfy us, the love that we're actually looking for, is a love that our Heavenly Father wants to give us right now if we would turn in faith to Him. I think another reason that people dabble in the occult is that people want to know the future. 
Right? We're curious. We want to know what's going to happen to us. And, and we want to make sure that our future is going to be okay and that nothing bad is going to happen in the future. And, and yet here's the thing we need to understand. We already do know what's going to happen in the future. Because God has already revealed it to us in his word. He has told us that what will happen in the future is that every one of us in this room will one day die and stand in front of the God who created us and give an account for our lives. That is the future for every single one of us. And he has already told us in his word that there are only two eternal realities. There is a place called hell where we are separated from God forever and ever. And there is a place called heaven where we will live with him in an eternal relationship with him that we do not deserve because of his grace. And he has told us that the only difference between heaven and hell is whether or not we know his son, Jesus Christ, in a saving way. That is the future for all of us according to God. And we already know it. The question is, are we prepared for it? Are we ready right now for that future to come? I think a large part of whether we are ready or not is determined by what we're going to talk about next. Here's the next way we can be faithful to God even when things get weird. We can accept that our real problem is not that God hasn't spoken to us. It is that we haven't wanted to listen to God. Certainly, that was the case for Saul. Saul first asked this woman to bring someone up. He doesn't give the name of who he wants brought up. I think that's intentional. And this woman seems a little bit skittish already. She knows that Saul has driven all the mediums out of the land. She doesn't realize that the person she's talking to is Saul. And then it's interesting in verse 10 what Saul says to her. He says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Well, what a, what a thing to say. How ironic it is that he swears by the Lord at the very moment that he is disobeying what the Lord commands. The fact of the matter is, because the Lord lives, there will be punishment for her, and there would be punishment for Saul as well. And it wasn't Saul's place to say anything otherwise. But the woman hears this word from him and asks him who she, he wants brought up, and he says, Samuel, he wants to hear again from the prophet that first anointed him king, who is now gone. Verse 12 says that when the woman saw Samuel coming up, she screamed. And she realized a couple of things. One thing that she realized was that the person who was her client was King Saul. And she screamed out and said, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul now, of course, there is a lot of debate about this story in, in a lot of different aspects. Uh, people debate whether Samuel really showed up in this story or not. Was this fake? Was this someone else? Was this demonic? Then there are those who also argue, what, what does this story teach us about uh, the occult, about seances in general? Does it shed light on whether they are fake or whether they are real? And since we don't have too long, I'll just give you a quick answer on some of those questions, I do believe that many of those who practice the occult are total fakes. And I think it is possible that this woman was a fake. I think that might be part of the reason why she screams when Samuel comes up, because she may have never experienced anything this real before. And so she is screaming because she realizes she is not in control of what is happening at this point in time. But I would also say this, I don't believe that all who practice the occult are fakes because the Bible tells us that the material world is not all that exists. 
Demons are spoken of all over the pages of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. What I do believe is that in many cases when a medium is connecting someone with a lost loved one, who they are actually connecting them with is a demon. Because biblically speaking, except in rare cases like this one or in Matthew 17 where Moses and Elijah appear with the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, except in rare cases like that, what the Bible teaches is that people do not come back from the dead and appear to the living until the resurrection from the dead that will happen at the last day. And so to sum up, I think mediums are either fakes or they are connecting people with demons and neither one of those is particularly attractive. But in this case, I believe that this really was indeed Samuel. That's how the narrator speaks of him. He doesn't say someone who appeared to be Samuel. He refers to him as Samuel. The words that Samuel speaks are in accord with the words that Samuel spoke to Saul during his lifetime. And I believe that in this instance, because God can do what God wants to do, he allowed Samuel to come back and to speak a word to Saul again. And so as Samuel appears, Saul begins to speak to him and makes his request in verse 15. And he says, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I've called to you that you may reveal to me what I should do. So he says, God won't talk to me anymore. That's why I've come to you. That's why I need you to tell me what God wants me to do. And Samuel's response to him is so powerful because he basically says, Saul, what what, what do you want me to say to you? Why do you think I'm going to say anything different to you now than I already said to you before? He says, Saul, basically what's happening to you right now is what God already told you was going to happen to you. He's not going to give you a different answer today. He told you that the kingdom was going to be taken away from you because of your disobedience, and that is what is happening right now. And then in verse 19, he says, And by the way, tomorrow you and the nation of Israel are going to lose this battle. And then he says something to him that, as one person put it, uh, you never want a ghost to say to you. And that is, he said, tomorrow you and your kids are going to be with me. That's what Samuel says to Saul. And and as I studied these words this week, what really struck me is that Samuel really didn't say anything new to Saul at all. Saul went through all this trouble to bring Samuel back from the dead, and he didn't learn any new information except for the fact that his judgment would happen the next day. What, What Samuel said to him was just a reiteration of what God had already said. Saul kept saying that God wouldn't listen to him, but but in reality, the problem was that Saul wouldn't listen to God. Saul hadn't listened to God throughout his life. God had told him to be obedient, but he wouldn't listen. God had told him that he was going to take the kingdom away from him, but he wouldn't listen. God had told him that he was going to give it to this neighbor, David, but he wouldn't listen, and he spent his whole life clawing and tearing to try to hold on to a kingdom that God had already said was not his anymore. God wouldn't talk to him because God didn't have anything else to say. God had already said it. Saul said that he wanted Samuel to tell him what God wanted him to do, but he already should have known what God wanted him to do. He didn't need a magical ceremony to know what God wanted him to do. What God wanted him to do is what God wants us to do. He wanted him to repent of his sins and to turn in faith to himself. 
But that is something that Saul was never willing to do. Friend, again, he wants the same thing of us. He wants us to turn away from our sins, to repent of them, to turn to God, to put our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And the good news is no matter what you or I have done in the past, no matter what sin we have committed, if we will turn in faith to the Savior and repent of our sins, we are promised in the word of God that he will forgive us that he will accept us as his own, that he will wash away all of our sins, that we can be declared not guilty in the sight of God. And that is good news indeed. But it is only good news if we respond to it while we still have the opportunity. You know, we hear a lot about fake news today, and some people treat the gospel like it's fake news. Like it may work for some people, but it's really not for me. It really doesn't apply to me. It's not all that important. But, but listen, friend, realizing on Judgment Day that the good news wasn't fake news will be bad news. Because the good news is only good news for you if you believe it in time. Well, after Saul hears Samuel's words, including the last thing he said about he and his sons dying the next day in battle, it was more than Saul could take. And he falls down headlong on the ground. He is dreadfully afraid. He's paralyzed in fear. He hasn't eaten anything. He has no strength. And so in verse 21 and 22, the witch has pity on him. And you know you're in a bad place when a witch is the only person who has pity on you. And so she tries to get him to eat something, but he refuses it. But finally, the witch and his two servants convince him that he needs to eat. And so he sits up on the bed and he watches this witch take the fatted calf in her house and make him the last meal that he would ever eat. As one person put it, it was a meal fit for a king. But he would only be king for a few more hours. And verse 25 is so ominous. It says, So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. And you can see them in your mind's eye as they sulk back through the night to their camp, awaiting their certain doom the following day. And yet in spite of the dark ending to this story, there are some pointers here that show us a final way that we can be faithful to God even when things get weird. We can believe that even in the darkness, there is one who brings the light. I don't know where you are spiritually today, each of you in this room. Maybe there are some of you that feel like you're going through a dark time and an uncertain time in your life. And God can lead you by faith to honor him in what you're going through if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe there are some of you here that would say, you know what, I feel like there's a lot more similarities between me and Saul than I ever realized before because honestly, I really haven't been obeying God. And I really haven't even been wanting to listen to God because I don't want to hear what God has to say. I really just want to live life on my terms and so I'm almost just sticking my fingers in my ears so I don't have to listen to him. But I've realized today that by doing that, I'm putting myself on a path that leads to certain doom and I want to get off of that path. How can I? But what God says to all of us is that we get off of that path by putting our faith in the Savior. And as strange as it may seem, Saul gives us a picture of that Savior in these final verses. There is another who, like Saul, also had a last supper the night before he died. 
In the upper room with his disciples, Jesus had one final meal. Now, he did not share that meal with a witch like Saul did, but he did share it with a man who was a traitor that Satan had taken possession of, who would leave before the meal was over to slip off into the night and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Like Saul, Jesus got up from that last supper and he went out into the darkness of the night. And it wasn't just a physical darkness, it was a spiritual darkness that night in the garden as Jesus contemplated all that it would mean to bear our sins the next day on the cross. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, there was a strange darkness that came over all the land for three hours. It was not so much the excruciating physical pain that Jesus went through that took the greatest toll. It was the spiritual weight of bearing our sins. It was the spiritual agony of his father for the first time in eternity, having to turn his face away from the sun. And so although for very different reasons, like Saul, Jesus also felt forsaken by God. Saul told Samuel that God had forsaken him, that God wouldn't answer him anymore. In Saul's case, it was because of his own sin and his failure to obey God. But on the cross, Jesus was not forsaken for any sin of his own. He was forsaken for our sin because he bore our sin. The Father turned away. And that's why one of the seven things that Jesus said while he hung on the cross is the first verse of Psalm 22 when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At 3 p.m. that day, after six excruciating hours on the cross, Jesus entrusted his spirit to God and he breathed his last and they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb and it seemed as though darkness had won the day, but that was not the end of the story. Because three days later, before the break of dawn, the light broke through the darkness and Jesus, the king of glory, rose up from the dead. In our story, Saul wanted so badly for Samuel to come back from the dead to give him a word from God. We don't need, church, for Samuel to come back from the dead because we already have one who has come back from the dead and has given us a word from God. And the word that he has given us, that resurrection word, is a word of hope and it's a word of peace and it is a word of life. Because what Jesus said in John 11 is true. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even in the darkness, the light shines. Because the light of the world, your son Jesus, has come for us. And he has died for us. He has paid for our sins. He has been raised back to life. Father, thank you that we don't have to wonder what the future holds. Because you've already told us. You've already told us that one day we will all stand before you and you will judge us by the man that you have chosen, the man Christ Jesus. And so, Father, I pray right now for anyone in this place that hasn't yet trusted in Jesus, that today, knowing that that judgment is coming, 
that they would cry out to you in faith. That they would come to you in repentance and brokenness over sin. That, Father, they would reach out their hand for life and hope and forgiveness that is only found in you. And, Father, may they make that step of faith while there is still time. Lord, would you move now by your Holy Spirit's power? Would you speak to each of our hearts? In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. First Baptist Melbourne Podcast. Making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. 